the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 37, September 1968. After World War II, an American in Shanghai, the Reverend Dr. Orr Lindbergh, one of our newsletter family, walked downtown one morning and witnessed an amazing sight. Wealthy Chinese sat on the sidewalks and even in the streets weeping and sobbing uncontrollably. Scattered around them were large piles of paper money, in denominations up to $5,000. A government order, in view of rapidly growing inflation, had declared all bills of $5,000 and under to be invalid, and their wealth and life savings had just been abolished. They had gone from store to store, bank to bank, hoping to realize something, and they had failed. However, the money, if accepted, would have done them little good. A little later, this American paid $25 billion for a new suit. Exactly a week to the day later, a small dime store mouth organ for his son cost $50 million, and such was the distrust of all paper money that it took two American paper dollars to buy one Chinese silver dollar. This is inflation, the breakdown of paper money. Millionaires find themselves unable to buy a slice of bread with their millions, and in some instances have starved to death. Inflation is one of the results of managed money, and managed money is the cornerstone of socialism. In fact, socialism is impossible without managed money. Managed money is the deliberate state-controlled debasing or counterfeiting of money is the basic form of social planning. Paper money and coins of baser metals passing in the place of silver or gold is managed money, whereas gold and silver coinage, which constitutes real wealth, is valid money. For money is not merely a medium of exchange, it is a form of wealth, and if the medium of exchange is a controlled and counterfeit one, wealth is progressively confiscated and destroyed. As a result, The first and basic step in any socialism, in any status confiscation of private wealth, is to require people to accept a counterfeit or debased money, a mere representation of wealth in exchange for their very real wealth, their labor, goods, and properties. Managed money is the basic form of socialist planning. The state produces the managed money and begins to spend it for social planning. With this managed money, the state can further its welfare programs, its progressive controls and expropriations, and its total programs of planning and socialization 
because as the producer of managed money, it is the biggest buyer on the market. The state buys real wealth in the form of labor, goods, and properties and gives managed money counterfeit wealth in exchange. The paper value of the people's wealth increases for a time, and prosperity seems to prevail until the process reaches the point of increasing confiscation as the money rapidly inflates and becomes worthless. But a runaway inflation not only destroys the creditors, the middle classes, and all with savings, it also destroys the state which permits it. It leads to a collapse of the civil government which promoted it. Previously, runaway inflation has reportedly occurred. Will it again be the route to disaster? Managed money or socialism is a parasitic economy. The state feeds on the people's wealth and the people eat up their own future and their country's future with a debt economy and growing areas of socialization. Socialization produces temporary benefits to some, but socialization as a parasite economy must rob and confiscate in order to give. Instead of creating new wealth, it destroys existing wealth. As a result of this progressive confiscation and destruction of wealth, the country begins to falter and to move towards economic collapse and catastrophe. A savage struggle for survival then begins. The socialist interventionist or welfare economy then faces a grim choice. Who shall survive, the people or the state? Increasingly in the modern world, the socialist answer is that the people must be sacrificed to preserve the state. To stop deficit spending and return to hard money would create a depression, which would hurt but would save both the state and the people, although at a cost, but this would involve abandoning socialism. This the state will not do, because to sacrifice socialism now means to sacrifice the state, which now sees itself as identical with socialism. As a result, the state turns to what Wilhelm Röpke and Hans Senholtz have described as repressed inflation. Repressed inflation, according to Röpke, in Economics of the Free Society, quote, consists fundamentally in the fact that a government first promotes inflation, but then seeks to interdict its influence on prices and rates of exchange by imposing the now familiar wartime devices of rationing and fixed prices, together with the requisite enforcement measures, unquote. In other words, the cure for the disaster bred by the growing controls of money, men, and property is total controls. This is like saying that the cure for tuberculosis is one lung, is its presence everywhere in both lungs. Ropke noted that repressed inflation is more deadly than open inflation and, quote, ends inevitably in chaos and paralysis, unquote. And it is repressed inflation which we are steadily getting as the federal government moves to control steel, copper, and aluminum prices, and to limit private spending by taxation while continuing and increasing its own deficit spending. On May 9, 1959, Arthur Upgren in the Minneapolis Star stated that the U.S. would, quote, go bust, unquote, by 1970 because of the breakdown of money. 
in a paper on the subject, quote, why the United States is most likely to have a financial collapse in 1970, unquote, Upgren offered as his answer to the pending crisis more money management. But more money management means simply more socialism. Briefly, such answers, in effect, declared that the only way to escape economic law is by means of the totalitarian law of the state. This is then the course being progressively taken. More money management, which means more socialism, and thus progressive confiscation. This means chaos and disaster. It means the breakdown of money also. But most of all, it means the end of socialism. The socialist states of the world are all parasites. As parasites, they have lived off their people first and then off the United States. Now, as repressed inflation begins to work to gut the American social order, the socialisms of the world will collapse with this breakdown of American free enterprise. When the host body dies, the parasite also dies. The desperate attempt of socialism to survive by sacrificing its people fails to work. With outside help, socialism dies. A socialist world cannot exist. Thoughtful men will naturally seek to protect themselves by investing in land, gold, silver, and other historic hedges against inflation. But the counter-hedges of socialism against self-protection are greater than ever before. And while survival is important, it is not enough. Socialism is finished. It is destroying itself, and although the worst lies ahead, the certainty of socialism's collapse is nonetheless inescapable, and it must be a basic premise of all thinking concerning the future. The central concern even now must be Reconstruction, the creation of new institutions dedicated to liberty, education to that end, and the assurance that the fresh air of liberty is ahead, past the days of chaos. The wise, therefore, will recognize that the breakdown of money, socialist money, is overtaking us, and that there is no security in counterfeit currency. Before they sit weeping, like the shock, <clears throat> before they sit weeping, <clears throat> before they sit weeping, like the Chinese of Shanghai, surrounded with their worthless money, they had better dedicate themselves and their wealth to the cause of liberty before it is too late. As Senholtz has pointed out, our managed money today is the poorest form of investment for the future. In the long run, an investment in liberty offers better returns. The above was written two and a half years ago and filed away. Today, there is no reason to change a word of it. The news accentuates our crisis. For some years now, people have profited by inflation. They are now geared to what Gary North calls, quote, the economics of addiction, unquote. A news report of Saturday, August 24, 1968, is headed, quote, brink of credit disaster, unquote. Oakland, California Tribune, page one, states that, quote, over one-third of all American families are on the brink of serious financial trouble, unquote, because of heavy indebtedness. And most other Americans are also very much in debt and cannot take a real crisis. The reason is that, quote, a consumption ethic, the reason is that, quote, a consumption ethic has replaced the work ethic, unquote. 
The demand by all these people in debt will be for more easy money, more paper, in order to pay off good debts with bad money. The people have a vested interest in more inflation. Their prosperity depends on it. The federal government also has a vested interest in more inflation. Its power depends on it. When over one-third of all American families face financial disaster or very serious trouble, according to the American Association of Credit Counselors, can anyone imagine an administration doing anything but inflating? Virtually all the politicians of these days seem primarily interested in power, not the future, and the road to political power is now inflation. After them, the flood. The foundations are being destroyed. It is high time to rebuild, to rebuild on a solidly Christian foundation. Galcedon Report number 38, October 1968. One of the deadliest errors of our day is the failure of political science. In the teaching of political science, there is no true doctrine of the state, indeed. We can say that there is no theology of the state, but only a pretended science. In the ancient world, the state was regarded as a divine human order, and the ruler of his office was divine. The true religion of pagan society was the religion of the state. The word, quote, liturgy, unquote, comes from a Greek word meaning, quote, public work, unquote. Religion in Greek society was a part of the state's public works to ensure morale. Not the biblical God, but the state was the sovereign lord over man and his, quote, true, unquote, God. Man, the Greeks held, was a political animal, a creature of the state, not a creature of God. When Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond it, the biblical doctrine of the state under God went with it. The result was a life and death struggle between the church and the state, between two rival theologies, Christ or Caesar. Who was man's true lord and master? As the persecutions of the church ended and the state had to abandon open paganism, they adopted a pseudo-Christian guise to reassert their pagan doctrine of the state. Arianism, and especially Pelagianism. Our concern here is with the Pelagian doctrine of the state, or the politics of Pelagianism. According to Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, Quote, the central and formative principle of Pelagianism is the assumption of the plenary ability of man, unquote. B.B. Warfield, Studies in Tertullian and Augustine, page 291, New York, Oxford University Press, 1930. Pelagianism believes in the natural goodness of man. It is not man who is evil, but his environment. The state also is naturally good and is therefore to be trusted with all the powers necessary in order to cope with an evil environment. The Pelagian state believes in a state-created paper money rather than the intrinsic value of precious metals of gold and silver. The Pelagian state sees itself in every realm as the source of standards and values. The real and major revolution of the modern age is the revolution from a biblical to a Pelagian doctrine of the state. This revolution began in the, quote, medieval, unquote, period. Such figures as Frederick II represented the growing Pelagian doctrine. It flourished in the Renaissance 
and it triumphed with the Enlightenment. The faith of modern man is Pelagianism. As a result, literature abundantly reflects this faith. It shows us the hero as one who stands, quote, for truth or Edenic innocence, unquote, and is victimized by society, as in Truman Capote, John Stafford, James Purdy, and others. The hero is a lonely youth, quote, exposing the corrupt adult world, unquote. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, the hero is a well-meaning lover in Nimeru, Buckner, and Macaulay, or a homosexual in Vital and Baldwin, whom evil institutions condemn. Quote, in time of organization, Eros is utterly disorganized, unquote. The Negro especially is seen as the poor innocent condemned by an evil society and so on. See Joseph J. Waldmeyer, editor, Recent American Fiction, Some Critical Views, page 31, Boston, Houghton Mifflin, 1963. In brief, the more evil or the lower society deems a man to be, the better he must be in the eyes of the Pelagian. It is the debased and pervert, the criminal and the shiftless, who ipso facto represent the most oppressed and downtrodden, the most naturally good of society. As a result, the hero for modern fiction and increasingly the hero for modern life and politics is increasingly the lowest kind of man. The worst elements are subsidized, lionized, and catered to because in the eyes of Pelagians, they are really the best. The law-abiding and orderly people become a part of this evil environment. If they were good, they would revolt. To revolt is the sign of natural goodness. Thus, the more Negroes riot and revolt, the better they are in the eyes of the Pelagians. If they are godly, they are overlooked. Pelagian churches hold to a similar anthropology or doctrine of man. And because virtually all churches are Pelagian today, they attack God, the supreme environment, and glorify revolutionary man, the innocent and holy victim. For the Pelagians, the, quote, normal, unquote, man, in example, the godly, law-abiding citizen, is vicious, perverted, and insane. This is the thesis of the student revolutionist and of Herbert Marcuse. Ronald D. Lang, a British physician and psychiatrist, in a book highly praised by the Los Angeles Free Press, writes, The condition of alienation of being asleep, of being unconscious, of being out of one's mind is the condition of the normal man. Society highly values its normal man. It educates children to lose themselves and to become absurd and thus to be normal. Normal men have killed perhaps 100 million of their fellow normal men in the last 50 years. Dr. R.D. Lang, The Politics of Experience, page 28, New York, Ballantine Books, 1967. If you are a Pelagian and believe this, you will then believe that it is the duty of all good men to revolt against the society of normal man and to work for its destruction. This is the faith of the new left as well as the old left. Stoughton Lynn in The Intellectual Origins of American Radicalism makes it clear that he has an unqualified trust in the natural goodness and perfectibility of man. This same Pelagian faith governs present political action. 
The rioters are subsidized and catered to. The welfare recipients are treated with increasing favor. Welfare recipients are encouraged to act as though the state owes them a living. In New York City, one out of seven receive welfare and one out of six babies born are illegitimate. The law-abiding are penalized. They are taxed heavily to subsidize all this. Pelagianism, being sympathetic with evil, cannot cope with violence because it provides a justification for violence. Abby Hoffman, 31, a yippie leader in the Chicago disturbances, declared to the liberal New York Post, quote, They call us hardcore anarchists with plots to overthrow the government. Well, that's not a secret. That's always been the case, so what's the big deal? So far as I'm concerned, we totally won the Battle of Chicago. I have just written a book about it. Its title is Revolution for the Hell of It, unquote. Quote, meet Abby Hoffman, unquote, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, Tuesday, September 10, 1968, page B2. How can a Pelagian cope with an attitude which he creates and justifies? In foreign affairs, a Pelagian state will believe that because men and nations are naturally good, the response to goodness will be goodness also. Include the enemy as a friend and a co-worker, and all will ultimately be well, because he is not really evil. Thus on Monday, September 9, 1968, a 31-nation committee of the United Nations convened to draft a new international agreement aimed at defining principles for, quote, friendly relations and cooperation, unquote, among UN member countries. Committee members included the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. Quote, ultimate irony, unquote, L.A. Herald Examiner, Monday, September 9, 1968, page A-17. Meanwhile, a Pelagian, a retired Supreme Court Justice, Tom C. Clark, insists that society is to be blamed for the increasing crime rate. Parade, June 2, 1968, page 4, quote, Why the Crime Rise, unquote. This Pelagian trust in the goodness of man goes deeply into our culture, into the modern mind everywhere. Police report that a sizable proportion of rape victims invited trouble by being too trusting. One of the most startling things I ever encountered was the report of a woman in the rape of Shanghai in the 1930s. Her reaction was almost beyond belief. Repeatedly raped by the soldiers, her one thought was that she could hardly believe it was really happening and that men could actually act that way. A generation so blind, so deeply devoted to a Pelagian faith, is incapable of coping with evil because it cannot recognize evil in itself or in other men. Its inability to see evil leads to a radical trust in a man and in the state. Evil is continually projected on the environment. If the state becomes so evil that its evil must be cited, then somehow the state has become a part of the corrupt environment. It is the establishment, and it must be overthrown and replaced with a pure regime. The new left regards the establishment as a part of the evil oppressing order of the past, of priestcraft and religion. It insists that we have evil rulers but a good, misguided people. Many pseudo-conservatives share this opinion, and they tell us also that the church has evil leaders but good, misguided members. This is the Pelagian theme of a moral man in an immoral society. 
On the contrary, however, it can with justice be said that our leaders in church and state are better than we deserve. In neither church nor state do we find men of moral courage, that is, the courage of their convictions. They are pushed by the mob rather than leaders of it, whatever their position. We have today the fruit of generations of statist education, arrogant Pelagian man. The statistics of our world and of the United States are interesting. All elements and example the various age groups are Pelagian on the whole. They differ only in their intensity and dedication. In the closing years of the last century and the early years of this century, there was a high birth rate. There is thus today a sizable element of the population of retirement age. The generation between the wars represents a lower birth rate. From World War II to the later 1950s, there was again a high birth rate. In terms of the death rate, by 1970, the great majority of Americans, and this will be true in other countries also, will be under 25. The erosion into permissiveness and radical Pelagianism has meanwhile been rapid. Our more astute politicians, the Kennedys, McCarthy, and others, have had their eye on this rising power, and they are more governed by it than able to govern it. The Pelagian state, by its philosophy and education, creates a mass man, a mob. It begets the new barbarians and scientists. The new barbarians assume that all the heritage of the past is simply a natural resource which simply exists. What is not desired can be destroyed and the rest will remain. The new barbarian refuses to believe that each generation must accept and develop a tradition to retain it. Recently, I have encountered a number of cases of hippies from excellent families who despised and rejected the establishment, including education. Apart from reading revolutionary writings and demonstrating, their education gave them no competence whatsoever. Many received good grades also from sympathetic professors. Faced suddenly with a girl and a baby to provide for, a licit or illicit family, they found themselves incompetent for any kind of work. The reaction is either a mental tailspin or wilder revolutionary involvement. And why not? More and more have come to believe that work is obsolete, that man can now provide total security and welfare by means of a truly human social order. Failure to do so is an ugly plot by reactionaries. The Pelagian mentality is a departure from reality and the Pelagian state inescapably pursues a suicidal course. The desperate need is for Christian, for biblical statecraft. This means establishing our concept of the state, among other things, on the biblical anthropology, on the doctrine of the fall. Neither man nor the state is to be trusted. Sovereignty is essentially an attribute of God alone. The state and man can only handle limited power and limited liberty. The supremacy of law, God's law, must govern every sphere of human activity, nor can any sphere be divorced from God. Church, state, school, work, art, science, agriculture, society, and all things else must be under God, or else they are under judgment. This, then, is obviously a time of judgment. Equally obviously, we must make it a time for reconstruction. 
Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now 
to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.